Thank you for joining us for another episode of CryptoCurrent. Just one quick reminder. CryptoCurrent is a cryptocurrency and blockchain education platform that's bridging the gap between the curious newcomers who are just discovering the space and the thought leaders who are shaping its future. All opinions expressed by Richard Carthon, the CryptoCurrent team, and their guests on this show are exclusively their own opinions. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Richard, the team, and their guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow his financial advice. This show and any other cryptocurrency production is exclusively for informational purposes. What's going on, everybody? For Cryptocurrent, I'm Stephen Miller, and you are watching The Aftershock, the show where we bring you the latest and greatest in the world of Web3 to keep you connected to what is evolving and changing in our space. Of course, as always on these Aftershock episodes, I'm joined by the host of our interview series and the one and only Richard Carthon. Richard, how you doing? Doing well. Uh, we just got back from our very first and inaugural Cryptocurrent team a retreat. So that was really cool. People came out to Austin and a lot of people that had been working remotely got to all meet together for the first time IRL in real life. And uh, we had some uh, fun team building activities, got a nice little work session in as well. And it was just cool to be able to celebrate, you know, episode 300 with the the team last week. So um, obviously a lot of different things going on in crypto. We're going to get into all that, but it was nice to like, you know, not think about all that and just be present with like real human beings for, for a change. But how about you? How are you doing? You know, man, I was really stoked about the weekend. I thought that we did a lot of really great stuff out in Austin. But at the same time, I think that we did ourselves right and did our history right by celebrating episode 300 a little bit. Um, for those of you that have not yet played back episode 300, do us a solid. Go check that episode out. Um, we got the chance to talk about where we have come from, where we are right now and where we're going. And it's exciting times here in crypto land for us, despite there being a bear market. But if you're a first time viewer or a first time listener, please do us a big favor. Make sure that you're subscribed over on YouTube or following the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We put out these episodes of the Aftershock every single Wednesday. And we also do our interview series every Monday. Now that's a little bit of a change because you may be used to by now up until episode 300, hearing our episodes every Monday and Friday. But Going forward, we've made the decision to shift over to a one-episode-a-week format. Um, Richard, real quick, just to give everybody at home a little bit of an idea why, um, would you like to share with everybody why we've decided to shift to just Mondays? Yeah, so we want to make sure that we are maximizing the amount of information that we're given on each of these episodes. So we've been pumping out a lot of really great content and almost to the point where we feel like we might be um, self-imploding on or self-eating ourselves with all of the things that we are putting out there. So what we want to do is we want to expand and we want to make sure we go deeper with each of the amazing guests that we are bringing and presenting to you. And that way you can really get a full understanding of what it is that they're working on, how it can be a good resource for you, next steps that you can do, um, and really giving that white glove type of treatment with each of the uh, relationships that we're building here at CryptoCurrent and making sure that 
we can give you as much as possible uh, to help you move forward with your own journey. Um, and we're making a ton of other changes. Those will all will come, but just know that everything that we're about to start bringing to you is going to be making a lot more uh, high quality for everyone listening. Yep, without a doubt. I think quality is the word of the day. And without much further ado, folks, we're going to jump into the quality of this episode, and that is our Aftershock News Catch-Up. So let's dive right in to this week's Aftershock. The Aftershock. So in the Aftershock, we break this into two segments for you. We've got the Web3 Lightning Round, and then we've got last week in the Metaverse. So let's jump into Web3 Lightning Round right now to take you update, update to update in crypto. So our top story for the day is the next piece in the Three Arrows Capital saga. So they're currently apparently looking to move to Dubai and escape all of the insanity that they've caused for themselves elsewhere around the world. But on top of that, it's just been found out that Three Arrows Capital founders, in fact, used company funds on a $50 million mega yacht. Um, It's a really good look if um, you're insane. But Richard, what do you think of, I guess, this next it's ludicrous, move? Dude. I, I mean, when things are going well, no one's going to ask questions. No one's going to look that hard. However, you file for bankruptcy. Everything looks at a, a super massive magnifying glass. And this is nuts that they did this. Like, even if you're having a ton of success, like, you shouldn't be doing this. Like, yeah, you it, it might fly under the radar because, like, who cares when, you know, you're crushing it. But... You shouldn't be doing this, period. So just, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this. These these dudes are are insane. Yep. So give me your uh, two-second hot take. What's worse? Celsius having a $1.3 billion hole in their um, balance sheet or the Three Arrows Capital founders deciding to spend $50 million on a yacht? It's Celsius by far, but like the Three Arrows, like where this is sucks is like, dude, do you, you now have to liquidate this this yacht. You're going to have to sell it at a loss. And then you still have to justify why you did it in the first place. Just, it, you just, it looks dumb. And it is, and it is dumb. Yep. And it's going to come back even further because apparently they're also going to be liquidating their entire NFT portfolio, which is substantial. So you're going to see a lot more of these lowball subfloor prices on NFTs as well, all to just recover some amount of money for the people who have taken massive losses and suing them during their bankruptcy. So pretty wild, but let's go ahead and forge ahead. Our next story is from good old Chipotle. So Chipotle is officially relaunching their buy the dip crypto game with over $200,000 in prizes. Now, Richard, does this actually come um, just at the same time as Avocado Day with with, um, a lot more perks in store for folks? Man, what's what's really cool about this? Uh, and the answer is yes, because you get the you know one dollar uh, avocado, but they're giving you crypto. They they switched over to where they started accepting crypto. Um, I believe some point last year, and they're really just leaning into trying to capture more and more um, of this audience by rewarding people uh, in in different forms of crypto. I believe you can get you know Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some of the others that are out there, and yeah, it's pretty pretty awesome. You buy some avocado, you get crypto. I, they'll be getting my business soon. Look, man, that's just part of free uh, free guac day that they're doing. So I'm stoked about it. I think it's great. I hope that you have some good luck at home. Get yourself some uh, crypto from Chipotle with your burrito. But let's move into our next side story, which is 
Tesla selling off 75% of its Bitcoin to quote unquote, build liquidity over the China shutdown concerns. Now, this is a really big deal because so far, China has been very hush hush about what the situation is over there with the virus. And now apparently Tesla's starting to take it all seriously and want to liquidate Bitcoin to make sure that they're covered in the case of a shutdown. Richard, are we really going to be caring about this all that much? Or are we moving on quickly? Because I think that them selling off their Bitcoin is a blip on the radar during a bear market, as opposed to a much bigger event. But what do you think? It's a blip. And the fact that they're selling 75%, they kept 25% for a reason, right? They can't take a total loss. And like the the logic for China shutdown concerns, like, dude, China's flip-flopped on whether or not, you know, Bitcoin's legal and also that kind of stuff multiple times. Beginning of the year, it was not legal. Now people can hold it. Now they're talking about China shutdowns. Dude, just again, a blip and we shouldn't spend a lot of time on this. In that case, let's roll ahead. We've got our next story in the lightning round bringing it back to FTX. So over the last couple of weeks, you may have heard that FTX has been on a buying spree. They're basically the leader in crypto acquisitions during this bear market. And they are continuing their crusade to conquer all of crypto by offering early liquidity um, to not just Voyager customers, but also potentially acquiring South Korean exchange. Um, is it BitThumb or ByThumb or... I'm pretty sure it's a bit Um, way uh, they're currently doing $560 million in daily volume over at Bitham, Bytham, Bytham. Who knows how it's pronounced these days, but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes there. They've also made a Voyager purchase agreement. Apparently, it was a lowball bid. They're not going to stop. That's what I'm convinced of. They're not going to stop until they own all of crypto. Um, Yeah. A lot of people out there that think that the digital currency group is the head kind of cartel or um, cabal behind the scenes in crypto. And I think that FTX, despite being like partially funded by them, is trying to give them a run for their money. But what's your read? Oh, FTX is trying to take over. I, I agree with what you're saying. They are doing everything possible. They're they're getting all the fire sales. They And, and what they did was extremely smart. They wouldn't got all of this money, and then they kept a lot of it liquid. For why? Because they knew at some point the market would turn and a lot of these people potentially would get in trouble. But what they didn't anticipate was the just absolute collapse between uh, Luna and everything else, which has made everything cascade even faster. So while they were like, okay, we're sitting on all this money, now they can go bail out a lot of these really, really bad situations at a discount, and they're fully taking advantage. Now, I are they structuring all the deals favorably? No. Why would they? And they can. They they're taking advantage of a situation. I'm not necessarily mad at it, but like, dude, they're they're trying to take over everything. I'm the furthest thing from mad at it. I think that the article that came out from Voyager saying that like you know they were lowballing us and all this other stuff. Like, I have no sympathy. <laughs> I have no sympathy at all because you guys allowed yourselves to get into such a bad financial position that you don't deserve to get the valuation that you once had. That's just a reality. Yep. You effed up, homie. Anyway, let's go ahead and move on because I think that FTX taking over is not really um, breaking news, if you will. So Coinbase is officially petitioning the SEC for specific digital asset securities rules. Now, this comes after they cited that the current securities framework has a lot of difficulty as a 
groundwork or an, a, a larger way to look at digital assets. There are some things that are very much so more specific in digital assets um, that certain security laws can't necessarily uphold. So they're right now working and lobbying for more specific digital asset rules for digital asset securities. Now, again, like we haven't heard a lot more about it since the uh, Hinman testimony was allowed to be seen in the XRP case. But Richard, I have a feeling that we're going to see a lot more specificity out of the SEC in very near term, because if that's as bad as I think it is, the only answer is going to be, yes, we will give you exactly what you want so that we can get like the big top of the government off of our asses. Is that how you see it? Or do you think that we're going to see this before the XRP case ends? Uh, I don't know if we see it before. There is another... Uh, there's legislation that's supposed to be going in around uh, this um, in in the U.S. and they basically punt it to late September, uh, getting closer to election day um, or after midterms. And I think we're going to continue to see that. I think they're basically trying to see how our midterm election is going to shape out, and then we're going to let that determine how new policies and things are put in place. And I think the SEC is kind of like waiting to see what happens there. So. I, I think that's kind of the play here, but like the sooner we get clear direction on all of these different rules from the SEC, from the government, all this other kind of stuff, the easier it is for institutional money to really start coming in and we see the next bull run. So like, I'm all about it. I mean, I, I hope they hurry up. I don't think they're incentivized to hurry up anytime soon, uh, just from a timing standpoint. So like, I, I don't really think we're going to start seeing anything start moving until late November, December, if that. Yeah, I think we'll see. I'm personally really bullish about the end of September um, because I really do believe that ETH 2.0 is going to happen and we are going to see an actual merge occur and that we're going to start to see a run on that. And I don't think that we're going to be able to wait until the midterm elections. That being said, you also have a really big issue with the fact that a lot of people right now think that um, in the United States we're going to see a very significant change in with those midterm elections. So read that how you will, but we're going to go ahead and forge forward and not make this into a political show. Our final story in the Web3 lightning round this week comes from Audius. Now, Audius is a really unique protocol because they are spinning themselves as the Spotify of Web3. But along that story, now that you are starting to decentralize the music industry, it comes with a little bit of baggage, and that is that your token is going to be used for governance. So the Audius token allows for the governance of the protocol. And when people don't pay attention to what governance can actually do, you end up getting proposals in that could potentially be very damaging for the protocol. In this case, Audius was exploited for $6.1 million because a malicious governance proposal got passed through their DAO slash through their infrastructure. I I hate to say it, man, but like I really think this is going to be a lot more common of a case now that we're in the bear market. People do not realize that they're actually holding governance tokens and a lot of bad actors are probably going to start coming in after this specific instance and explicitly be going after pulling liquidity out of these protocols just because they know that nobody's going to be able to vote against them because they have the voting power and the ability to reach a quorum with their governance votes. What do you, do you think I'm on point here or is there another way to be looking at this? No, I think that tracks. When you discover a way to 
not, I mean, yes, legally, but like you have a way to exploit things that is fairly done. People are always going to try to scam. People are always going to try to find a back door and, you know, do what they can to get you. But if they have the means to do it in a way that is like compliant, I, I don't know that you can necessarily get mad at it. It, it sucks, but like they exposed something that was fair, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, man. Like it's, it's, it's a weird concept of like by going in and helping to pass governance by just owning a certain amount, which is the point of a decentralized market. You're going to be exposed to people who can come in with enough of your native token and make those kinds of decisions, especially for the, the, the fact that a lot of people don't participate. So even though you, you might have a ton of coins, if 80% of them don't show up to then go and pass different governance rules, then that also frees you up to have this kind of stuff happen as well. <laughs> Same thing with just like, you know, again, not a political show, not getting into politics, but people don't show up to vote sometimes too, even though they might be registered to do whatever and feel a certain way about a thing, they don't show up to vote. What's the point? Yeah, but I mean, you also jump into one other thing here and like, I'm glad that you're bringing it back around to a real world example because this is the Web3 example of defrauding an institution. Like it's exactly what it is. So I would be interested to see how you could take those individuals who brought this proposal forward and managed to get it through in front of a court. But I don't think that'll ever see the light of day. I think that this is just going to be what it is. Um, and I'm really curious to see what ultimately comes of this because I think that people are going to start to realize that they've got too loose of governance protocols within their um, within their protocol constitutions because every single protocol has like a set of bylaws that they operate under. This is going to call into question a lot of that. So we'll keep you posted on this, but let's jump into last week in the metaverse. So this is where we're taking you through everything um, related to NFTs, metaverse, uh, crypto gaming, and the like. And our first story comes from the U.S. government Department of Ethics, which has officially informed all government officials that they must report NFT investments worth more than $1,000. Now, there is a caveat in here, and it's that word investments. So there is reason for people to believe at the higher levels that if they are viewing their NFT purchases as art purchases, and not as a short-term investment, they do not have to report. I think that this is just their way of providing a loophole. I think that without saying this, it, there's just too much left up in the air for people to just kind of abuse within the system. But I think they're ultimately still going to abuse it. Do you think that's the case? Or am I spot on? Because the more I think about it and the more I hear myself explain it, the more I think I'm spot on. Well, yeah, but it also think about that, right? It's so vague, right? If if they got a report on NFT investment worth a thousand, if they invested a hundred dollars and now it's worth 10 grand, do they have to report it now? Like if you are a part of a company that diversifies into it and like you put in X amount and it diversifies into whatever, like, do you not have to report that like, oh, in that portfolio, there's something that's over a thousand. There's so many, like you said, loopholes. There's a lot of ways that they could potentially try to still get around this. I think they're trying to show that, hey, you can't like do these short term things or try to make, I don't know, House of Representative like NFT or something like that. But like, 
they're going to have to do more with this. The thing that bothers me about this is that in a lot of cases, you see things rolled out under the guise of ethics at the top level, and then it slowly gets trickled down to the populace. And yet, the populace isn't aware of the fact that the language is actually presenting a loophole. So by the time it reaches populace, they're just being told that if they, if they spend money on NFTs and it's more than $1,000, they have to report it. That's the negative here, at least from my perspective. I don't want to see that become the case, but I'm worried that it is nonetheless. So we'll keep you posted on how this one develops, but I think it's something to be at least aware of so you can tell your uncle who's in Congress to um, help make sure that NFTs are protected. Now, this is probably the biggest story in the metaverse last week. Minecraft, your favorite block building game, has officially dropped the hammer on NFTs, issuing a full and complete ban from the servers and the game at large. Now, this is a really big deal because a lot of players and a lot of creators around the Minecraft space were already starting to build out NFTs that they could use in the game. And no, no institution or project was more involved in that than a project called NFT Worlds, which has since announced, since the ban, that they will be creating their own platform based on many of the core Minecraft mechanics since the ban. Uh, there have been a lot of scathing comments coming out about Minecraft and how this is just a complete middle finger to all of the creators, the players, and even the partner you know, brands to Minecraft at this stage of the game. But with what NFT Worlds plans on doing and what the Sandbox is already doing, I think that when you immediately cut out the ability for people to monetize their Minecraft spaces, you're going to lose a lot of people from the game. So maybe that's my take on it, but you also have other players in the gaming space who are coming out railing against it as well. So in response to the ban, Epic Games has released a statement saying they will not be banning NFTs. And Epic Games is one of the larger open world game uh, creators out there. So that's good news for people who are looking at their games and saying, hey, maybe we can have NFTs involved in Epic Games going forward. Um, Richard, what do you think about this one? Because I know that you are at least exposed somewhat to the sandbox and what they're doing. Do you think that ultimately this is going to be a negative move for Minecraft? Or do you think this is just a negative move for the NFT world in that they're saying that they don't want to be a part of it? Man, this is going to be such a short-term, terrible decision. So, I mean, sorry, a long-term, terrible decision. So, like, in the short term, you're going to cut off these creators from being able to monetize within your platform and and stop having as much like in-game purchases, et cetera. And right now what Minecraft has market share and they have all these people who are here who, you know, if you love the environment and do what you do in, in Minecraft, you're, you're going to keep a lot of them. But as more and more of these creators, which man, I have watched videos of people in the worlds that they create Minecraft. It's insane. Like the amount of time, effort, energy they put into this stuff and they can't really monetize it other than, you know, what they are are doing like on like a Twitch or, or them like showing themselves building it or their YouTube channels, whatever. To not be able to turn that potentially into an in-game NFT that you use that you can then go in and monetize on, these really great creators are going to go elsewhere once those games have just as good, if not a little bit less 
quality and mechanics as Minecraft. So I think it's still going to take time to build those kind of environments, those types of games to to pull people over because ultimately gamers aren't really worried about the play to earn. They're not there yet. They're there to game. It's the reason it's the fastest growing thing in, in the world. Um, people love really good games. It's a, it's a way to disconnect. It's a way to build online community. It's a way to um, be in a world and environment that's conducive to what you feel. But for these creators that are in there doing it and doing a really good job, you're saying like, hey, actually, I need to make all the money. You can't make any of your money. Again, for now, in the long term, Minecraft is going to regret this. I'm calling that now. It's going to take a couple years to get there. But like, I like that Epic is like, nope, we're here. Come on. Creatives, come on over here. We're, we're good. What I will say is I think that it's going to be the Epic Games that went out here at large and the other companies like Square Enix that are trying to make bigger moves into Web3. I think they're all going to benefit from this a bit more than you're going to see NFT Worlds or Sandbox benefit from it. Because again, as you said, a lot of these gamers, they don't necessarily care about the crypto side of it yet. They don't. But they want to have they want to at least know that if they're going to go forward gaming with certain companies, that the doors open, right? That to me is the biggest thing. They want access to like be able to explore that when the day comes. Um, that being said, like I don't think that a lot of these boxy weird games are going to be the future. I think that when you're talking about the metaverse and VR and what crypto gaming can be, we're going to end up seeing something more sleek in the style of like a Ready Player One, right? That's that's where we're ultimately going to see crypto gaming and metaverse go. And nothing is more indicative of that than what we've, we've seen in recent weeks from um, the project Wilder World and Alluvium. Um, the, both those projects are making massive strides forward and are doing land sales soon, right? So I would be really careful about, I guess, aping into NFT worlds on something like this. I don't think that they have enough proven at this point. Now they're saying they need to build an entirely new platform. So maybe there's an opportunity to buy if it really bottoms out, but I wouldn't count NFT worlds out just yet. I think that they're very dedicated. They have a great team. They know the architecture of Minecraft really well. And who knows, you may see them start to void out and move over into Sandbox's ecosystem. There's a lot of different paths forward for them from here. But we will keep you posted on how this one develops and take you into our next story. So our next story in the metaverse this week is from Time Magazine, who is officially moving to an NFT subscription model, giving users more control over their data. This is, in my opinion, the most unprecedented, like absolutely under the radar news of the year. The reason I say that is because modern news and magazines are dead. This may actually be the first step towards a true revival of written and digital magazine and editorial media. And when I say that, I say that in mind, the fact that like people consider BuzzFeed like modern media. But BuzzFeed's garbage. I'll say that now. And I have a friend that works at BuzzFeed. So let me say it louder. It's garbage. Doesn't matter. Point is, with time moving forward with an NFT subscription model, they're taking a massive risk, but a calculated one. Because ultimately, if they can convert more of their users over into this model, make sure they have control over their own data, 
they can also get much more closer insights from what their users are looking for from that media. So they can start providing more catered content to their user base because they know it a lot more closely. I'm excited by this. What other things are, does this make you think about, Rich? The perpetuity of having an NFT subscription model that they have all these paywalls that they're starting to put up where like, yeah, if you put in $1.99, you can now like, you know, a month, you can view all our stuff, all these paywalls. And I think people are really getting sick of paywalls. They'd rather just go somewhere that's free, even if you are putting out like superior content. So you're already limiting yourself to a small amount. And yes, at the end of the day, what is $2 other than $24 at the end of a year? But for a lot of people, uh, millennials and younger who are used to free stuff, a lot of people don't care if it's the greatest thing ever. They're just not going to go for it if they have a ton of other free media options like Steve just said BuzzFeed for whatever reason he has a grudge against. We can unpack that at a different time. But for NFT's subscription model, that's awesome because like now that you own this and you potentially can be earning revenue in addition with Time Magazine as they do well, it's also something that you can then go and gift to somebody. And now they have access to it. Like there's a lot of different pathways that they can make this a sustainable model and have this reach the new age audience that they need to be actively going after, which again, are your millennials and your Gen Zers and so on. Like how do you start to get the next wave of who your audience will become? Um, so I think this is a good approach to doing it. It's going to sound weird because like I personally believe in like SaaS models and subscription models with certain businesses. But I think in media, it's been one of the biggest failures that I've ever witnessed. You've seen more media conglomerates get absorbed and merge across the last decade because of that than you would have otherwise thought. I mean, like you should seriously do some like looking into it once you're done listening to this podcast episode and all of our other interviews. But when I look at the future of media and all of like the opportunity that exists there, NFTs allow media communities to come together. And you don't get that from a New York Times. You don't get that from a Washington Post. Like, sure, maybe there's like a subreddit out there for people who really love print media. But most people who love print media don't know how to use computers. So I'm going to leave it at that. I think it's going to be a really interesting evolution for the internet and for digital uh, magazines going forward. But let's jump into our second to last story. Now, it's no secret that Yuga Labs has been under fire in recent weeks and um, have also been doing some firing, for example, in their case against Ryder Rips. But Yuga Labs is now officially accused of artificially inflating the price of their NFTs in a new class action lawsuit. This is going to be really, really interesting. Or it's going to be really, really quickly dismissed. Richard, which of the two do you think it's going to be? I don't know about dismissed. What do you think? I think it's going to take a very large burden of proof to be able to prove that they're actually artificially inflating the price. They like you will need to show actual messages and um, proof of collusion with holders to be able to get away with that. Like, and I'm only saying that because like 
you and I both studied law to a degree in college. And, and I, to, I understand like the entire idea of like innocent until proven guilty, but there's that exact term that I said, burden of proof. And that's why I think why well, it's not going to get dismissed. I think it's going to get settled. But I mean, you really think that that counterparty that is forming a class action against them has the ability to get definitive damning proof that Yuga has been trying to coordinate behind the scenes artificial inflation, like trying to get holders to elevate floor? Oh, I think it's going to be really hard. And I think that they're going to go every route possible to try to make it happen. But they have other fish to fry. They are, they're already getting sued by a couple of other people for different places. Like they're getting attacked from a lot of different angles and they got to start picking battles, Steve, or they're going to get, you know, lawsuit dry. That's why I think when they look across the, the board, I'm like, okay, what's stuff that we can just ignore and whatever. This might be one of them. And so I will, is the burden of proof really hard? Sure. Will it take time? Absolutely. Will it drain potential resources and pockets to like them to have to go and prove or, or, or to disprove that they didn't do that? That's going to take a ton of resources. Like if they really have to go and, and the burden of, of proof becomes like they have to then show like if they, if, if the people who are suing them present evidence that then shows that it's possible that they then have to then reverse and show that, yeah, that didn't happen. That's where I'm saying it's going to be challenging. Like if they can truly get past this initial hurdle, the lawsuit does go through and they go to like an actual trial. Yeah, dude, like that, that's, that's going to take a ton of resources. And I think that's the danger for all of NFTs. And I like, I'm, I don't mean to like, raise a flag of alarm or try to be alarmist on this because like frankly i believe in nfts is the future like i really do but there's still so much that's currently unknown about like the ip side of it like how much claim you really have to your intellectual property in what you're purchasing you have a lot of questions about certain mechanisms within projects as to like how that can affect price for the perfect like recent example did you hear about the Wizards Project at all? Mm -mm. So really interesting story here. So the Wizards Project, spelled WZRDS, did this really cheap looking drop. It wasn't anything special, but of course, like some people bought onto it. They really liked the dynamic behind it. They saw some interesting shit in the contract. They tried to move it forward. And it wasn't that it was like overtly publicized because a lot of people got burned by this exact fact that I'm about to lead into. But they launched a campaign basically like, I want to say a week after the launch of Wizards that basically was called The Hunt for the Cowards, but spelled C-W-Z-R-D-S. And the entire thing basically was built around the fact that like, if you were not listing, if, if you had your wizard listed for less than three ETH, it was going to immediately get burned by the contract. So you didn't have an authorization at all saying outside of minting the NFT that this could automatically get burned if it's listed at any, at any point in time below three ETH, but that was buried in the contract. Nobody saw it. And apparently, like, thousands of these Wizards NFTs automatically get burned, and it immediately inflates the floor up to 3 ETH. So that's not artificially inflating the price. That is deliberately manipulating price. 
Yeah. So you, like, there's a lot of reasons and it's why I bring that story up is that like, there's a lot of different ways in this space that you can make these type of claims. But unless you actually present a burden of proof, upholding that in a, in a court case is going to be null and void. And at the same time, any type of money that you're trying to make out of that, it's only going to end up going to cover your individual lawyer because that's going to be a long an arduous case that's going to take up a lot of capital. And ultimately, you're probably going to kill the project in the process because all of that liquidity will dry up. With you, with Yuga, Yuga's going to be fine. Okay. Yuga's going to be very okay because they'll be able to settle. If you look at the XRP case, they had billions of dollars in terms of their total valuation. And that's why they could go up head to head, toe to toe with the SEC as long they as they have the liquidity to stick it out. Exactly. NFT projects don't. So they're going to have to either settle on this or it's going to get thrown out with summary judgment. So who's going to have to say, I don't really know off the top of my head, but that's the way that I view it. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this goes going forward. But we'll keep you posted on how it develops as we get into our final story for the week. Premint. Um, you may have heard us talk about it two weeks ago when they got hacked and there was an exploit on the site that um, unfortunately was abusing set approval for all in was draining people's wallets. That's why you got to make sure that you read the transaction before you click sign or yes. Um, well, they've officially made public the acquisition that we shared with you about a month ago. And that is that they acquired Vulcan Auth. Now Vulcan Auth is if you're in the NFT space, or you're familiar with discord, it is a brand new solution out there that has been absolutely earning the love of a lot of big communities and collectors. It's used within the Moonbirds community. It's used within the XCopy community. And what it does is it helps servers token gate the server. So it means that you have to show proof that you own a proof NFT or a Moonbird NFT to get access to that server. You use this, this solution to gain access. By acquiring Vulcan Auth, Premint is starting to actually build a massive war chest for themselves. So I'm really curious about how this one pans out, but I'm interested to see because it, it shows that they're prioritizing security, if this is going to play well for them in the optics lane now that they're still on the heels of that hack. Do you think that this actually is going to be something that benefits them a lot long term or is this just a short term vision thing? Uh, it's optics. I, I mean, I think it does help. I mean, long term, yeah, it, it helps them, but this is only solving one issue with Discord. You still have all your other social channels that people can actively go after that they can't really do a whole lot about. Uh, they still have exposure to all of these other third parties um, as far as the different places where they've launched their NFTs. So like, again, it, it solves one challenge of just Discord. So I think it's optics. The benefit that I will say about this acquisition in particular is that it does start to give them the tools and the ability to offer a full suite of services for NFT projects because it, it is already a very B2B pro, uh, project, which Premint is. They allow you to set up an allow list for your project and like a snap and start working with other communities to offer allow list spots. This could be their pathway towards also taking on token proof, which is the like IRL event token gating solution of choice right now. So I'm interested to see how it develops, but I think that there's a lot more going on in the space that people need to be aware of um, when it comes to security. And by having a Vulcan auth out there, get more funding and continue to build forward, 
it's going to be overall good for the space. That's the way that I read it. But that right there is going to wrap up this week's Aftershock. We appreciate you being here. It's been a blast chatting with you guys today and catching you up and keeping you connected to the world of Web3. Richard, I know that we just moved to a brand new model of Monday interviews only. So why don't you tell the folks at home who they can go and check out on CC interviews right now? For sure. So Monday, we just dropped an interview with a long-term favorite, Mr. Blockchain Wayne, Wayne Marcel. Um, He is going to... Uh, or he's now working as the head of business development over at uh, FIO Protocol. They're doing a lot of really cool things. Uh, they're allowing you to essentially uh, have a, a name and uh, think of it like almost like ENS of a, of a sort, but it's not just for Ethereum. It's for uh, their own layer one protocol where you can now send uh, money. So if I had like at Richard Carthon, you can send that to me. If you try to send Bitcoin and I don't have my Bitcoin set up, it won't let the transaction go through. So it just validates and verifies that whatever you're trying to send won't actually go through unless you actually have the wallet and everything set up. So it's just another layer of security so you don't mess up and send uh, crypto to the wrong place like I'm sure all of us have before. I know I have before. I always send a short amount. And that's actually something that Wayne brought up in that interview Uh they really try to solve that problem of like, you don't have to just send a small amount to verify that it will go through to a proper wallet address and a lot of other really cool things. That's awesome. So make sure that you go check that out. That's Wayne Marcel from FIO Protocol. Um, the last thing that I will say is you better make sure, sir, that you put some respect on that man's name because he is not just head of business development. He's also the chief meme officer of FIO Protocol. That's Never forget it. Never, Never forget. forget it. Wayne's a good friend of the show. We appreciate him coming back on and sharing us, sharing with us some of his um, new job over at FIO and FIO, whichever way you would like to call it. And but, he will uh, be a speaker at our upcoming in-person IRL event in Austin, Texas. So by the way, if y'all don't know about that, we are doing a in-live person event called AGME. Austin's going to make it. It's going to be on August 19th, Friday, August 19th. Come and check us out. Get more information at AGMECon. That's agme, A-G-M-I-C-O-N.com. And uh, be on the lookout for more info on that. we got a really cool thing on the way. Tickets are now available. You can go get your tickets up there. We are also going to be doing a new speaker announcement this week. We've got a lot of great stuff coming. We hope you'll come out and join us. That is going to be at Speakeasy in Austin, Texas. It's a great spot. Um, and we're going to be having a really great afternoon conference there. So we hope you come and join us. But until next time, folks, We hope that you have a great rest of the week. We'll see you next week for another Aftershock. But until then, make sure that you stay cryptocurrent. We'll catch you soon. Bye.